The Deakin Law Student Society acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we are based, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to Wurundjeri elders past and present. Welcome back to another episode of the Deakin Law Student Society podcast. My name is Bella and I'm a social justice and equity officer. I'm joined today by Dr. Oscar Ruse, our resident expert in constitutional law, who's here to talk us through the mechanics and logistics of the upcoming referendum. I'm sure you're all aware that on the 14th of October, we'll be asked to vote on whether the constitution should be altered to create an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament. And Oscar is here to talk us through what that means. Welcome, Oscar. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Our very first question is one that has been asked a lot by a lot of students who have been very curious, both law students and non-law students. Um, When we're talking about the upcoming referendum, people are really curious about why this particular change needs to go to a public vote when the government makes laws and changes systems all the time. Um, Well, the answer to that question is really about what this change is intended to do. Um, It's intended to do two things. One is to afford Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people's constitutional recognition. Um, And the only way you can get constitutional recognition in our system is to be in the constitution. And our constitution can only be altered through a referendum process. So in terms of that objective, the only way it can be done is by amending the constitution. It can't be done by way of ordinary legislation. The other other, uh, objective of the proposed change is to um, create an to create an Aboriginal voice or an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander's voice. Now, the the reason that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people have asked for a constitutional amendment is because they want an organisation that can speak for them that um, is permanent. Because there is a history going back to the nineteen seventies of bodies being set up in part to provide advice to the government about the position of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And they have become the subject of political controversy and abolished. So none have have lasted the distance. So um, in terms of what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are asking for, or at least the people who are involved in the Uluru process, which led to the Uluru Statement, um, what they want is something that has constitutional permanency um, that won't just be subject to the, the the whims of whichever party is in government at the time. So for students like myself, I was alive the last time we had a referendum in Australia, but most undergraduates, I would say, <laughs> probably weren't. Um, so there's a little bit of confusion. How is the upcoming vote different to, for example, the 2017 vote on marriage equality? Yes, that's an issue because, yes, you, many students have had, well, most students presumably have had that experience of at least being aware of the plebiscite. In a constitutional sense, they're fundamentally different because the plebiscite was not about changing the constitution. By the time the plebiscite uh, was was uh, rolled out, it was very clear that under the present constitution, uh, the Commonwealth Parliament had the power to legislate for same-sex marriage and, in fact, had done so by... Uh, making it unlawful. Um, So uh, the plebiscite was not about constitutional change. The plebiscite was entirely legally unnecessary. Um, The parliament could have legislated to allow for same-sex marriage if it had wanted to. The reason the plebiscite uh, emerged was it was a way of dealing with an impasse in the coalition uh, between 
the coalition, meaning the coalition of Liberal and National Party, between very strong same-sex marriage supporters or marriage equality supporters and very strong uh, people against marriage equality. And there's no way the Liberal Party could resolve that. So the plebiscite proposal was actually proposed by Peter Dutton as a way of uh, not kicking the can down the road, but avoiding constant turmoil within the coalition, putting it to the Australian people. And then the idea was, and this happened, if there was a clear majority in favour of the change, then the parliament would legislate accordingly. But it was entirely legally unnecessary. Whereas in, in this case, to change the constitution, the Australian law is you must have a referendum. So if we're going to have constitutional change, which is not what the marriage equality um change was about, then we need to have a referendum to change the constitution. Could the voice to parliament have been created without conducting a referendum? Um, the answer, without sounding too much like a, a lawyer, the answer to that is yes and no. Um, the yes part of the answer is that the Commonwealth currently has the power to legislate with respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Uh, and that change was made in the constitution by a successful referendum in 1967. So uh, consistently with that power, the Commonwealth already has, yes, it could legislate to set up a voice. Uh, now, the, the people listening to this podcast can't see me, but when I say a voice, I, I put that in scare quotes because it wouldn't actually be the body that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are asking for through the Uluru Statement, because, of course, it wouldn't be a body that gives them constitutional recognition because it would be a body constituted by an ordinary act of the Commonwealth Parliament, and it wouldn't be a permanent body because it would just be in ordinary legislation, it would be subject to being abolished by another ordinary act of parliament. So, yes, in the sense a body could be established with some of those functions, but it would lack the symbolic and significance of recognition in the constitution. It wouldn't be that, and also it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't have that degree of permanency that uh, the referendum proposal, if it's successful, will bring to the voice. Other than uh, recognition and the permanency that a constitutional change would afford the voice, are there any other benefits to this being brought through a constitutional change? Uh, yes, it's a very good question. Um, look, I, I think, and this is where I think we're an interesting moment in Australia's history, because I, I know that when the voice proposal was first being talked about, which was around about... Uh, the middle of the last decade. So around the proposal, the Uluru um, First Nations Constitutional Convention was in 2017. Um, people were talking about the voice referendum as being in spirit very much like the 1967 referendum. And in fact, the Uluru Statement references the 67 referendum. It says, in 67, we gained the right to be counted. In 2017, we want the right to be heard. So um, the idea was, I think, or the hope was between for many people who are involved in uh, the voice proposal was that it would be a nationally unifying moment where the vast majority of Australian electors would embrace this constitutional change and it would be a, a landmark moment in terms of uh, what's the broader project of reconciliation between Australia's First Nations people and other people. Because for those sort of people who aren't aware of it, the 67 referendum, which was about counting the Aboriginal people in Australia's population, was the most successful referendum ever in terms of popular support. 
it was supported by about 91% of people throughout Australia and in every state. So the idea was that this would this would be something similar. Now, on current polling, that doesn't look like that's going to happen, but I do get a sense that um, either way, uh, this is a nationally significant moment, uh, and it wouldn't be a nationally it wouldn't be of the same significance if it was just being done through the ordinary legislative process. Because the in, in this, all Australian electors have a say in this, so we're saying something as a nation about um, how we stand in relation to our First Nations people. Are there any risks associated with making a change to the constitution? Um, of course there are in the sense that there are with any change there are always risks um of the ones that have been I mean, there's a lot you could say about that of, of the of the risks that have been um sort of floated by perhaps the people opposed to this change probably the two the two that come up and they come up in for instance the no case pamphlet that's well the yes and no case pamphlet that's now probably in most people's letterboxes is that it's going to lead to protracted litigation. Uh, there's going to be lots of court cases about relating to the voice, both its existence and its role. And uh, the other the other risk that's at least put by no by the no case is that this will be a change forever. This goes to this idea of permanency that once we make this change, it'll be there forever. Um, so I, I think that forever risk if i can put it that way is is um an exaggeration um but the litigation of course our constitutional system has embedded in it the notion of judicial review and um people can go to court um but the, it, it's fair to say that the preponderance the overwhelming preponderance of legal opinion is this will not lead to protracted litigation there probably will be one or two cases um uh, but you know, and we none of us have a crystal ball. But um, the overwhelming majority of legal experts, including a number of retired High Court judges and very distinguished academics, is that this will not lead to a flood of litigation. But um, I can't deny that there's always the risk of litigation if we make a change. I mean, there's there's risk to any change. That that would be my assessment of the risk that they are small. I appreciate that. Even without a crystal ball, we can we can make some calculated assessments. Yeah, well, that's what lawyers do all the time. Is they, <laughs> you know, they have to make predictions about, you know, and when very experienced and, and brilliant legal minds like former High Court Judge Kenneth Hayne and and Chief Justice Robert French say that there is little risk of uh, protracted litigation, you know, I, I think their assessment of that risk has to be taken seriously. Mm. Definitely. Um, from a legal perspective, can you talk us through what the referendum requires in order to succeed? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, that's a very interesting and, and somewhat complicated question. So we're already some of the way there, which is further than we've been in relation to a number of the other proposals which have come up in the last two decades about constitutional recognition. Where we've got to is we've, which is in some ways, the first stage is we now have a bill that has passed through both houses of parliament by way of an absolute majority. So we have a bill that proposes a change to the constitution in the form of a new section 129. Um, so that's already been done, but the constitution then requires that in a period of between two to six months after the bill is passed, that it be put to the Australian electors for their approval. 
And that's what's going to happen on the 14th of October. And that process is complicated because you need both, in order for the proposal to be approved, you need both a majority of states, electors in a majority of states to approve. So we have six states, so you need the electors in four states by majority to approve the change. And you also need an overall majority of, of Australian electors in both the territories and the states. So that's the famous or infamous double majority, a majority of states as well as a uh, overall majority. And if that happens, then as a matter of formality, uh, the bill is then put to the is then sent to the Governor General for his assent, and then it becomes uh, law, and our constitution is altered. How many successful referendums have there been? Uh, there have been eight uh, out of forty four since nineteen oh one, which is about an eighteen percent success rate, which obviously is not uh, very high. Um, yes, yeah, so. Uh, at least based on on form, <laughs> you know, it's a bit like horse racing or anything, any other form of prediction. You know, the the, the form is not good for, for proposals to change the constitution. So eight out of forty four, and three of those were in 1977. So if you take 1977, if you treat that as a bit of a statistical outlier, then that 18 percent drops down even further. Mm. Wow, that is very low odds. I didn't realize it was that low. Um, <laughs> When we think about the referendums that have been successful, like the 1967 one in particular, can mm. you speak a little bit to maybe what Parliament was like at the time or what you think sort of contributes to the success of a referendum? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot written about that because there are a lot of people who've studied this, including political scientists and, and you know, what's the reason that so few referendum proposals have been successful? I mean, obviously, it's one of those things that there's no single one single factor. It's It's complicated, but... Probably in the modern era, most people think that by what's called bipartisanship is, if not an essential agreement, is extremely important. In other words, you need the two major political groupings, which in current Australian politics are the Labor Party and the Coalition, which is a coalition of a number of different parties, but basically the Liberal Party and the National Party, uh, need to both support the change. And that was the case in '67. Uh, that was the case in 46. Uh, I think it was the case in 1929. Um, and I think um, I, I think it's fair to say that at least three of the four proposals in 77 were supported by both sides of politics. And the one that wasn't, I think, failed. So, yeah, I think and and I, I, just going to your question, which I think is a very good one. One of the issues in the background here is is what some people talk about political polarisation, that in 46, uh, 67, we had both the Liberal Party and the Labor Party um, supporting a change. So we had a, a sort of, probably exaggeration to say, spirit of consensus, but, you know, a feeling across the aisle, to use an Americanism, that uh, both major parties believed in the change. Whereas, obviously... One of the most significant events in the history of this referendum proposal is that the, uh, well, particularly the Liberal Party has come out against it. Um, at least their leader has, and the bulk of the Liberal Party seems to be opposed. So that really has made, um, uh, the, 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 I think that has a, had definite effect on the likelihood of success. That seems to be, if not the critical agreement, a very important ingredient to have bipartisan support. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, if the referendum were successful, what would be the next steps to execute this change? And from a legislative perspective, how would the voice fit into our parliamentary structure? Yeah, no, that's because obviously it's one thing to change. And, and this is, I think, something that's um, not well understood is that um, all that the constitutional change that's proposed will do is to require the establishment of a body called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders Voice, and for that that body to have the power to make representations to Parliament and the executive government. But that's it. So within that envelope, so to speak, or that frame, it's entirely up to Parliament through the ordinary process of legislation to decide, you know, how this voice will work, how it will be elected, etc. So the next part of the process would be, if the referendum is successful, would be for the Parliament to debate the legislation actually setting up this body and all the detail about how representatives might be elected and how it might go about giving advice. Um, and the government, the present government, has said that that will be a process both involving consultation with the Australian people at large, but also consultation with Australia's uh, First Nations people. So that would be the next step. And then uh, a bill would presumably be drafted that would be debated as is the normally the case in both houses of parliament and be put to a vote. Uh, and one would presume at some stage a bill will be passed by the parliament setting up the actual mechanics of the voice. Um, so um, this is really just about requiring there to be a voice and setting up the basic framework and then the, the, the flesh to the bones will be added later by the parliament through the ordinary democratic process. Mm. Is there a possibility then that the constitutional change could be made if the referendum were successful but that the actual meat on the bones was never properly executed because of delays in the legislative process from there? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I, I, I think the answer to that is, is no, that... Um, that in, inevitably the parliament would see its way. I mean, it's very unlikely we would have... I mean, the history in Australia, particularly in recent times, in the last several decades, is generally our parliaments are able to form majorities around things. They generally are able to pass legislation. So I'm sure that parliament will see its way to, uh, if the voice referendum is successful, uh, to enacting uh, some form of legislation. And we just have to see how it works. And of course, we have elections, we have changes of government. And even if we don't have changes of government in the short to medium term, there'll no doubt be, you know, uh, criticisms made of the, the way the voice works and, and and opportunities to discuss what works well and what we got, and, and a process perhaps of further legislative adjustment. Um, the question is an interesting one, because there is another body, this is getting perhaps a bit off, off track, but there is another body that's meant to be set up in the constitution called the uh, Interstate Commission. Uh, and that only came into existence in 1911 and it was abolished by 1920. So we do have a sort of a ghost body in the constitution, but I think everyone's agreed that this body, you know, if the referendum's passed, it, that it will come into existence. Um, and the issue will be really then monitoring its its success you know, and seeing whether it can be improved or what needs to be done to make it work better. Um, but to some extent, that those questions are sort of a bit down the road um, because first we've got the issue about whether the Australian people are prepared to uh, make this change to our constitution. 
So the last question that I have remaining is just to open the floor for you to correct any misinformation that you might have seen being discussed in the media or across different um, media bodies in terms of the legislative process of the referendum and the change to the constitution that would come next. Yeah, look, that's, that, you know, that's it. Because, of course, one person's misinformation could be, you know, one one other person's information. So, you know, it, it, one has to be very careful about making the claim of misinformation as opposed to just a different point of view. Uh, and I don't think it's it's entirely possible to sort of separate yourself out. I mean, entirely what your own judgments are or, or how you might be thinking about deciding what is misinformation, what is not. But perhaps I'll, I'll have a go. I think... I mean, there's a couple that spring to mind. One is the notion that this is a Canberra voice, um, which is one of the terms that's been used in opposition to it. I mean, I, I think where that where that verges on misrepresentation is that this idea has come out of a consultation process involving uh, well over a thousand Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that really came from the ground up. There was a series of regional councils leading to uh, the First Nations Constitutional Convention at Uluru in, in 2017. And there was a consensus arrived at by the people attending that convention to request this of the Australian people. So, um, yes, one presumes the body will be located in Canberra and it will be advising the Commonwealth Executive and the Commonwealth Parliament. But I think the, the idea didn't come from Canberra. So I think that's one, one thing we have to be careful about. Another one which is tricky... And that's why I perhaps hesitate to say it's a misrepresentation is um, saying that this will introduce race into our constitution. I think we have to be careful there because the constitution already has a race power. The race power was put into the constitution in 1901 um, because the framers of the constitution expressly wanted to be able to make laws concerning, uh, able to make racially discriminatory laws. Um, and originally, pre-1967, that race power excluded Aboriginal people. Uh, and then when, when 67, with the 67 referendum, that provision was altered to delete the exclusion of Aboriginal people. So Aboriginal people became absorbed into the race power, which is where they currently are. So we currently have a race power in our constitution that allows the Commonwealth to legislate with respect to First Nations people. So leaving aside the history uh, of the, the arrival of the British and the taking of possession of the landmass of Australia in 1788. Um, you know, there's always been race in our constitution. The question is, how do we deal with that? In the same way as there's always been race in our history since 1788, the question is, uh, what do we do about that? So that's that's one other thing. Another one, and again, of course. There are Aboriginal people, we know, um, some of them are very vocal, who are opposed to this change. We, we know that. And, and, and that's from different ends of the political spectrum, one, one could say. Um, as far as we know, it seems that somewhere in the order of 70 to 80 percent, and the figures I've seen are more are closer to 80 percent than 70, of Aboriginal and First Nations people support this change. So I think... Um, Yes, it's tr it's not a misrepresentation to say that not all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people support this change. And one might answer that, of course, that's the case, because like everyone, just because someone is Aboriginal doesn't mean that they're all of the same mind, you know. So, uh, but um, 
it, it seems clear that there is at least a very clear majority of uh, Aboriginal and First Nations people who support um, uh, this change. The other thing, the other the other thing I'd say, perhaps whether it's a misrepresentation, uh, is this idea about the detail, which is you know constantly raised. I, I think the problem is that people don't necessarily understand how there's a constitutional process to set up the framework for the voice and to guarantee its existence. And then there will be a legislative process to actually, as I said, put flesh on the bones. And we're not being asked to vote on the detail. We're being asked to vote on the, on the institution, its existence. Um, so, um, yes, there are places where you can look at where the current government proposes we should go if the referendum is successful in terms of the detail. But, you know, that's the current government's position. Uh, and if the referendum is successful, we'll see what happens. But um, in terms of the detail about the proposal, the proposal is pretty simple. I mean, it's in your pamphlet. It's one, you know, it's 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 deliberately short and simple. So I think as um, I think Chief Justice, former Chief Justice Robert French has said it's a it's a it's a it's a simple idea with very big ramifications so i think yeah a lot of the talk about the detail is really about is something that will need to be discussed if the proposal is successful at the legislative stage and will be subject to alteration down the track amazing thank you so much for clarifying all of that for us i think that's my last question so we might wrap it up there but we really really appreciate your sharing your knowledge and taking the time to speak with us today it was very much my pleasure, and I congratulate the uh, DLSS on this initiative. I think it's really good. You know, it's not that often that students get the chance to vote in a referendum, which the majority of students will be able to do. So it's 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 important, and it's a responsibility that, that those who can vote should take uh, seriously. If you don't know, find out. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Thank you so much, Oscar.